0: Tēnā koutou, nō hide and my Welcome to Q&A. I don't know about you, but sheesh, my heart rate is still at about 300 after that remarkable game last night. How could anyone sleep after that finish? The Black, Black Ferns were just incredible and our congratulations to them this morning. Today on Q&A. Climate negotiations between the world's two biggest emitters have broken down in recent months. So what hope is there for anything meaningful at the business end of the UN's annual climate conference?
1: If we're at the point where we're having an argument about the effects that are already being felt, what that obviously says is that we have been too slow to prevent the atmosphere from warming and from some of those effects from already happening. I mean, that, that is absolutely the case.
0: Then, after more than 80,000 submissions and massive opposition, the government is pushing ahead with the Three Waters reforms. And what does it take for a resistance to become a revolution? Celebrated author Behruz Bouchani has been watching and hoping that in Iran, this might be it. He's with us this morning live. But first, Climate Change Minister James Shaw has just arrived in Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh, for COP27, the UN's annual climate change conference. The challenge for delegates this year is certainly no easier than in the past, with ongoing tensions between the world's biggest emitters, China and the US, plus the ongoing impact of Russia's war in Ukraine. James Shaw arrived at COP a short time ago.
1: Well, there are uh, many things that are very familiar and some things that are different. Um, I guess uh, one of the things that's different is that last year in Glasgow, um, we finally managed to wrap up what we call the rule book for the Paris Agreement. So Paris was signed in you know, 2015, um, but there was a lot of detail that was left unfinished. That took eight years to get complete until the end of last year. Now we're moving into the implementation phase. And and so the substance of these talks has shifted a bit. Uh, But uh, what's familiar uh, is that many of the things that have caused progress to be very slow in the past are still present, particularly around the issue around how wealthier countries like New Zealand are supporting the less well-off countries to make that transition.
0: Okay, talk to us a little bit more about that. What are you hoping to achieve in the next couple of days?
1: Well, you would have heard a bit about a category of uh, finance called loss and damage. So there's, broadly speaking, there's kind of three areas uh, where there's an expectation uh, that the developed world will support the developing world. Um, One of of those areas is what we call mitigation or how we reduce greenhouse gases, get down to net zero as fast as we can. Another is adaptation, which is essentially how we avoid the future cost Mm. of climate change by making ourselves more resilient to what's coming. And the third area, which has been very, very contentious, so contentious, in fact, that it hasn't even been on the agenda up until this conference, uh, is called loss and damage, which is essentially about the responsibility to support those countries that are most vulnerable and are feeling the impacts of uh, the climate, um, the, the warming effect that has already happened.
0: Why is loss and damage so contentious?
1: Um, I think because there's there's multiple interpretations about what, you know, what it actually means. But uh, there's a sense, I think, from some countries that they're worried about the idea that they might be held liable for historical emissions or that there's a sort of a, some kind of compensation regime for something that happened in the past. Uh, And, you know, you can imagine where some of that resistance is coming to. It's coming from those countries that uh, you know, with kind of the leaders of the industrial revolution uh, with very high uh, historic emissions. Um, and and so that, that really has been a bit of a sticking point. Our position in that is, look, you know, particularly when it comes to the countries that we're closest to in the Pacific, they are already feing, feeling the effects quite severely. You're already seeing displaced populations, huge amounts of their national budgets going to things like cyclone recovery and things like that. We've got to find a way through and we shouldn't really, you know, get too hung up on these kind of definitional arguments because we actually just need to make some progress.
0: Well, in the spirit of loss and damage, New Zealand has announced a $20 million, um, $20 million in funding to address loss and damage in developing countries. But what does it say about global progress that this is now the focus, that, that as opposed to the adaptation stuff, as opposed to the mitigation stuff, loss and damage is where we're at in the fight against climate change?
1: Yeah, I can see what you're saying with the question. It's like if we're at the point where we're having an argument about the effects that are already being felt, what that obviously says is that we have been too slow to prevent... the atmosphere from warming yeah. and from some of those effects from already happening. I mean, that is that is absolutely the case. Uh, and And, you know, that doesn't mean that we should stop trying to reduce our emissions because, you know, the more pollution we add to the atmosphere, mm. the worse the problem is going to get. So we actually do need to pull all three of those levers all at once.
0: That $20 million isn't going to go far, though, is it?
1: No, it's not. Uh, I mean, it'll obviously make a difference for uh, those places that are the recipient of that money. For us, this is really about signalling, given that we're only the third country in the world to actually put money towards uh, the loss and damage category, it's really about signalling to other uh, wealthier countries like us in the OECD uh, to say, hey, look, We all did pretty well out of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, There are some countries that are really feeling the effects of that right now. We have a duty to support them.
0: So why not signal it with a more substantial contribution? I look at, for example, the cost of Cyclone Yasser in 2021. That did about $250 million worth of damage to Fiji. We've only pledged $20 million. Why not beef that
1: up? Uh, Well, I mean, we actually do uh, spend quite a significant amount on um, direct disaster recovery, particularly Mm -hmm. in the Pacific. And obviously, you know, we do that both in cash and in kind, you know, we put the Hercules down and, you know, we we do quite a lot of um, kind of direct aid into the islands when when those uh, those events occur. What we're saying with this is that there's got to be a a more kind of global take on this, a more global solution than the Than the more kind of piecemeal country to country uh, responses that we've had so far, because this is. I mean, you know, we've, we've been doing disaster recovery and, and cyclone recovery and mm. so on for decades, right? I mean, that's just kind of a feature mm. of what we do. But the point is, is that all of that is mounting up. The scale and the frequency of those events is really increasing. Uh, and so we are looking for a global response.
0: Well, what you're saying is that this symbolises the right thing to do. By contributing this money, by, by, by blocking off this money, you're saying this is the moral thing for wealthy, developed countries that have benefited from the Industrial Revolution to do. So, what are the countries that are proving most resistant to a loss and damage approach?
1: Uh, Well, Jack, I'm not going to get into naming uh, names, um, but you know, you can imagine. uh, I mean, it's it's pretty easy when you look at the tables of those countries, like I say, that have done well out of the the industrial revolution, have been, um, you know, kind of had the greatest share of, uh, I guess, the global commons of Mm. the atmosphere over the course of the last couple of centuries. It's, uh, you know, I, I think kind of. This issue that we've had around kind of allocating responsibility and blame has been one of the reasons why these things have been stuck. We're trying to move beyond that and to say, well, actually, let's just crack on with it.
0: Yeah, I see an EU negotiator uh, said on Friday the UN will not, uh, this, this UN conference will not lead to a comprehensive agreement on loss and damage. So what is likely to be achieved on that front in the next couple of days?
1: Well, I'll give you a sense of how things are going. So, I mean, the, the fact is that it took something like 24 hours just to get it onto the agenda. Um, and when I say 24 hours, at this conference, I mean, mm. this has been building for years. So you can see how stuck things are when when you can't even get to talk about it. Mm. Um, I think that what's likely to happen uh, at this conference is that, is that there will be an agreement to work out a sort of a framework or a terms of reference um and there's currently an argument going on about whether a fund should be established before those terms of reference are current you know mm. kind of completely ironed out uh, or whether you, whether you wait uh, and so on i guess what we're saying is you know clearly uh, the globe's approach to this has taken many many years yeah. uh, and these countries can't afford to wait for us to just you know talk some more when it comes to the debate
0: over how best to reduce emissions. How does this COP compare with previous COPs? We look at, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uh, the implications for energy in the, uh, throughout Europe and in the European Union. Look at the tensions between the US and China in recent months. Their bilateral climate negotiations have broken down. Is there a sense of pessimism this year that there perhaps wasn't in previous years?
1: Uh, look, I th- my sense is that, you know, sometimes... You know, it kind of goes in cycles. There are um, conferences where you feel like you're making progress and then others where you feel you don't. I mean, there's definitely a sense of gloom about this one, particularly because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine Mm. uh, and the associated energy crisis, which is obviously causing a spike in demand in the near term for for fossil fuels. But it's also causing a massive acceleration of Europe's decarbonisation plans. So, you know... that that has actually had that effect Mm. as well. Um, My sense of the talks here is that, you know, everybody knows that, you know, even though the war in Ukraine is obviously a major global crisis Mm. with huge implications for everybody around the world, uh, that actually we still need to deal with the climate crisis. And so although it's in it's in these talks and it's in the background it hasn't it doesn't at this point appear to have produced any major sticking points we're just kind of having to get on with it having said that you know i'm not saying that the talks are easy but but i think people are kind of working around the war in ukraine rather than allowing it to you know be yet another another roadblock to progress.
0: And what about New Zealand? Just to take a snapshot of this week, the National Party has said it will scrap the offshore oil and gas exploration ban. Federated Farmers, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, Dairy New Zealand have all joined forces to confirm they oppose the government's methane targets. And even with the actions of this government, Climate Action Tracker rates our policy and implementation as highly insufficient. How is New Zealand any more serious about this crisis than any other country at COP?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm not going to argue that uh, we're any kind of golden child, right? But um, I have to say that, you know, as a result of the actions that we've taken over the last five years, we are really starting to make some progress. So, you know, I think you're right there's quite a lot of bad news there but there's also some really good news there we're now for example uh, one in three new cars sold in the country is an electric vehicle when I got into government it was one percent one in a hundred you know so we're seeing an exponential increase off the back of that and you're going to see our transport emissions come down as a result of that and that's not the only thing uh, that's changing you know you're seeing you know i opened up um, one of the country's first uh, solar schools uh, on uh, on Friday before. Uh, coming over here. Um, you've got major solar and offshore wind installations happening that are going to displace the last of coal and gas uh, in our electricity supply and sea enable the electrification of the economy over the coming years so it is I mean progress is really slow it is really frustrating but I think the period of time that we are in right now is the moment where we decouple our um the growth in our emissions that we've historically had from our economic activity and that that means that over the coming years you'll see you know things continue to truck on in the economy as they do um but our emissions decline at the same time and that is a trick that very very few countries around the world have managed to achieve yet
0: That is Climate Change Minister James Shaw in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Coming up on Q&A, you have to see these remarkable pictures out of Ukraine. As Russia withdraws from a major Ukrainian city, Ukrainians are literally celebrating in the street. We'll ask what it means for the future of the war. Ho kia welcome back to Q&A. After more than 80,000 submissions, the Government has announced it is keeping the co-governance structure in its three waters reforms. The Finance and Expenditure Select Committee returned its report on Friday, with the Government adopting recommendations that will see greater representation for regional communities on the four entities that are set to govern our waste, drinking and storm waters. Simon Watts is National's local government spokesperson and is with us this morning. Kia welcome to Q&A. Great to be here, Jack. This is your first term as an MP, this is your first time on Q&A, it is great to have you here. Why did your party leader trust you with this portfolio at this critical moment?
2: Well, look, my background's uh, banking and finance. I've been in that part of the world for over 20 years, so 90% of the issues in local government come back to funding and financing, and uh, you know, that's the skill set that I'm bringing to the table. Uh, we've got to work with local government, not against them, and uh, you know that's going to be a key priority for us going forward. OK, let's focus on Three Waters. The Select Committee has reported, back. What did you make of that response? Look, a huge amount of submissions, 88,000 submissions, majority in opposition to the reforms. The challenge was that there's been no real significant change in terms of the underlying, water services entity bill, that said to me, you know, the government haven't listened to the feedback of Kiwis and I think local communities are showing their their upset around that because, you know, people wanted the opportunity to be heard and that just simply hasn't been the case. What are your specific concerns? Look, the concerns that we've said right from the start relate to around the four-entity model, uh, the loss of local voice and that centralisation and top-down approach. Mm. We've also had significant concerns around the co-governance model as well and you've seen that reflected as well by a huge and overwhelming majority of Kiwis that are opposed to these reforms. Yeah, talk to us a little bit
0: more about the co-governance matter because this is something the Select Committee considered and they've decided to keep that co-governance structure. What is your particular concern with co-governance when it comes to Three
2: Waters? Yeah, look, so we believe that you know the co-governance model that's on the table is going to bring increased bureaucracy, increased complexity. You know that top-down approach and centralisation means that you know we're going to see loss of local voice. Uh, we've been pretty clear around the fact that we don't believe uh, that that model is going to allow us to achieve the. Up- Doesn't co-governance allow for a greater local voice? No, look, I think uh, the reality is is we're talking about pipes under the ground, we're talking about the delivery of water services and the the co-governance model of 50-50 around the table I don't think is going to deliver that. It's not quite 50-50 around the table under the current structure, is it? It's 50-50 around those
0: regional representation groups which are one part of the board structure that then overlooks the services. So you also have a professional board with professional experience around the delivery of public services that would be overlooking those different entities.
2: Yeah, that's right. But that board composition is also you know, the four requirements. of That 50% of those requirements are experience in terms of uh, manufacturer and EWI experience as well. You know, mm. we want a skill a built board based on skill. Uh, I mean, the, the professional the professional board does have to be based on skill though. 50% of that, right? Uh, this is four different components of right. those individuals. But look, at the end of the day, if you take it back, uh, local communities have been pretty clear around their opposition. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the consideration around local lo- loss of local voice has been a big factor. Uh, you know, and simply the model on the table, you know, in our view, isn't the model that's going to deliver sustainable change. The select committee report that was released on Friday
0: is significant, 600 pages or so. And um, you're the lucky man with the responsibility yeah. of, of of going through that. You have some particular concerns when it comes to park lands in New Zealand?
2: Yeah absolutely so you know what you can see in terms of the water services entity bill is not only the transfer of water assets but also the transfer of local parks and reserves into these mega entities and that's a that's a big concern you know an example is um, Waitangi Park in, in Wellington mm. you know a park which you, you know take your dog for a walk, uh, mm. kids play in the playgrounds these parks could be transferred uh, from local council ownership into these mega entities. Oh, but only if they have significant water un- uh, infrastructure underneath well, them right? You know, that hasn't been defined you know, in terms of that. Where they've, where they've got a linkage. But to it's the not, for mortar. example,
0: it's not every park.
2: Well, I think the minister needs to be very clear and, you know, call out to Kiwis. You know, are local parks and reserves going to be transferred uh, into uh, the mega entity model? You, you've gone through the, you've
0: gone through that 600-page report. From the way you understand it, just to be 100% clear. We're not talking about every park and reserve in New Zealand. We are talking about some parks, ones that have significant water
2: infrastructure. Parks that have a relationship with stormwater, but that hasn't been defined in terms of which parks mm. there are. And there is a heck of a lot of parks and reserves around this country. OK, I, I want to go back to some of the, some of the core
0: um, issues that have um, driven the government's reform agenda on this front.
2: Is New Zealand's water infrastructure up to scratch Look, we've said right from the start that we need changes required, right? And the challenge is is a top-down or a centralised approach Mm. to undertake that change, the right model. We don't believe it is. But absolutely, there are areas of the country which require uh, more investment and change to improve water services, and we've said that right from the start. How significant is that shortfall? Look, it is different. Different parts of the country have different requirements. There are problems in certain parts of the country, other parts of the country are absolutely fine. I think when you get into rural and provincial New Zealand, mm. some of those problems are amplified more so and the challenge really comes back to how do you sustainably fund and finance the infrastructure requirement, particularly where you've got small communities.
0: Mm. Okay, so, so where is it worst and how bad is it?
2: Look, I think you know when you get down to some parts of the South Island, there's a couple of areas down there where it's pretty bad, but then you come back up here to Auckland and mm. you say, well, actually, you know, the council-controlled organisational model is working reasonably well. Do we have issues? Absolutely. But, you know, there is different ways to solve that. So how significant is the shortfall in those parts of the South Island where you have concerns? Look, the reality is is a number of uh, councils have had boiled water notices, but I think that also shows that the water regulation system is actually working. Uh, but we need a plan to be able to make sure that the investment is targeted mm. on the area Areas of the system that are broken and at the moment the reformers is simply trying to so, change
0: everything. So how, how, how bad is that shortfall?
2: Well, it really depends on the different communities. Yeah, so the, yeah.
0: Con- the communities that you're concerned about, how bad is the shortfall?
2: Look, what we I'll give you an example, right? Hawke's Bay is a good example. Right. Four councils there have joined together to form a council-controlled organisation. Uh, well, obviously, the historic issues in that area. North, yep. But that structure there is absolutely working. Uh, they're doing the investment of capital. I'm my question, sorry. How bad is the shortfall in the South Island? There are certain towns down there that have got board water notices, but
0: what we've said so, how, so what does that mean in terms of the shortfall? What sort of investment would be required to lift those
2: boil water no, uh, notices and to protect them against well, issues in the, the future? The reality is, is that what councils have told us that are in that area is that actually they already are and have plans to undertake that investment. The challenge with them being merged into one mm. mega entity in the South Island is potentially some of those changes and reforms may right. be delayed or may be slowed. So councils can do it alone? They don't need central government help? I think there are certain councils in this country that are going to require support to transition. So how much? What's the short for? Well, this is, for? This is, this this is, is my point though, right? Yeah. I mean, the government are using <clears throat> significant numbers, $185 billion. Independent assessment of those financials has said that those numbers are overstated. In the select committee, a number of councils came and said our number is actually 20% of the number that the government have been using, right? That's the scale of differential. Um, is there a gap? Yes. Th- th- that's still 37 billion dollars. Well, it could be a new. There's a lot of money. Well, 40
0: billion to 185. Th- 37 billion dollars, 37,000 million dollars, are still
2: an astronomical Absolutely. shortfall. Absolutely. But the question is, is how do you fix that problem? And is centralisation into four entities and co-governance the solution? We don't believe it is. Right. What is National's alternative? So National will be releasing a detailed policy closer to the election, but we've been very clear around what our bottom lines are. The assets will remain in local ownership, and we won't have a co-governance model. We absolutely support the water regulator, Tomato ROI. we support economic regulation, and we support mechanisms of funding and finance to make sure that those assets are upgraded and maintained over a longer term. Funding and finance, actually the challenge really, if water care. they borrow for five years for assets that last 50 to 75 years. We need to match the borrowings to the asset life and that's not happening at the moment. Why haven't you released a policy already? Because we've been listening to the select committee process. Yeah. You know, we've said right from the start, we will work with councils, not mm. against them. 88,000 submissions mm. in that process. We're learning and continuing to be informed by that process and it only finished on Friday in terms of that. But... You know, we'll be uh, continuing to take on the feedback, and we'll release that uh, as and when but, it's but appropriate. We've been
0: we've been aware of the concern for some time. It is five years since Anne Tolley proposed a review of Three Waters in the first place. It's coming up to three years since Nanaimo Huta first started uh, with the reform process at Cabinet. Why have we waited this long to see the major opposition party in New Zealand come forward with any sort of detail, uh, aside from just saying we'd throw it back to, to local communities?
2: No, look, we've been pretty, we've been clear right from the outset in terms of our bottom lines around this. We've been absolutely open mm. in terms of working with uh, other members, yeah, communities for local democracy. have got an alternative model. The yeah. three mayors have got an alternative exactly. Model. Everyone's got an alternative model, yeah. except for the National Party. No, but we've been clear in terms of the fact that you we, know, we agree uh, in a large part around what we've seen tabled in terms of those alternative models. We've said we will work with local councils not against them, uh, you know, if we're lucky enough to be in government next year. Yeah it, I
0: mean it just seems remarkable to many that for example, those mayors have released an alternative plan. Had been in office for three weeks mm. and had a plan. And National has seen this for three years and still we are waiting
2: for any sort of detail. Around you've got those bottom lines, but absolutely no detail or alternative plan yet. Yeah, well, we respect the process that we go through in democracy in this country, and the select committee process has and has just finished, uh, and we'll work through that detail. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's still a lot of dialogue I think that'll be having. We've got two mm. more bills coming to the House mm. in regards to this. So this this conversation yeah. is not over. You've said that central government will still play a role in
0: helping out some of those smaller communities where the ratepayer base won't be able to address the shortfall. Why should someone in Auckland, where you've said the water infrastructure is pretty good and water care is generally doing a pretty good job, Mm. why should they be expected to subsidise a council in the South Island that hasn't done a good job of managing its infrastructure?
2: I think, you know, the ch- what you're referring to there is around cross-subsidisation. Yeah. And in, in reality, what's going to happen in Auckland is actually Auckland is going to be merged with Northland. So you're not going to see... In, under, the, under the current model, yeah. you're not going to see that cross subsidy. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's
0: one of the criticisms you have of the current model, right? That Auckland basically is going from a position where it's managing its assets pretty well into an entity where it's going to be a minority voice and it is expected to basically stump up for parts of Northland that haven't yeah. been doing as well. But exactly the same criticism applies to National's approach at the moment. You see that uh, some parts of the South Island have a shortfall. Well, me as a ratepayer yeah. living in Auckland will be expected to bail out those communities in the South Island that haven't maintained their infrastructure. Yeah. It's
2: exactly the same criticism. No, I don't think it is. I think when we the, the model that we're looking at is like-minded councils working together to form council controlled organisations like the Hawke's Bay model so mm. that model will, will replicate down to parts of the South Island. But you still said it needs central government help. Look, there is going to be parts of the model which are going to need support to mm. transition from where they are to where they need and to so, be. So, so so I don't he, see that as long term. Right,
0: so, but, that's still, but you're still talking about taxpayers and ratepayers in areas that have maintained their infrastructure, that have contributed rates, that have maintained infrastructure for decades, in some cases, bailing out other communities.
2: It's not necessarily a government writing a cheque for that. There is a number of mechanisms and ways in which we can fund and mm. finance that. A lot of this is around the efficiency of the funding model, allowing councils to have more degrees of lateral um, options on the table mm. to fund and finance. Uh, we want to give councils the menu of options Uh, that allows them to just get on and do what they need to do locally. And I think there is still some inefficiency in that part of the model. Can you rule out privatisation? Absolutely. National has been very clear. The only ones talking about privatisation have been Labour. Uh, What happens... 12 months from now then, once you've released that document or plan
0: from National's perspective, do we go to some sort of consultation process? Do we go to working groups? What happens?
2: Look, our expectation if we're in government next year is we'll repeal the Three Waters uh, legislation as we arrive. We'll then work pretty rapidly with the key stakeholders across this country on the alternative model and we'll get that in play. We absolutely understand that our communities need certainty in regards to this reform. Mm. Take our political hats off. We've got to get a Sustainable Solution for water in this country, and that's what I'll do. Before we let you go, um, we'll put
0: three waters to one side. The future of local government report has just been released, and you have been highly critical. You say we need to quote get smarter about how we invest in our communities. So, can you can you be
2: specific there? If National is in power. say a year from now, how will the central local government funding arrangements actually change? Well look, there was nothing in that report around aligning incentives with outcomes. We've got to be focused on the outcomes that our local communities and local government deliver. There was nothing in that report that talked about that. That's where we need to get to, and I think that's where our communities expect us to be at. Is what are you going to deliver, and how are you going to do that, and making sure that we've got confidence and certainty that that's going to occur. That's what we'll be focused
0: on. But I suppose, from from a broader political, philosophical position, even how will how will that funding arrangement? change from the from the status quo when it comes to the relationship between central government and local government in
2: Minnesota. Look at the end of the day it's not going to be a top down centralized approach you know national will take an approach which is based on our principles around localism and and devolution and we will have you know one size doesn't fit all mm. and we're going to need to work across cities regions and provinces to put in place models and plans that are going to deliver outcomes that Kiwis need and that's the approach we'll take Simon Watts, National's Local Government Spokesperson. Tēnā koe, thanks for your time. Thank
0: you, Jack. And lucky you with 600 pages of select committee report to go through, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to contact Q&A, please on mai. These are our main platforms. You can email us, and even after a wild last week, we're still on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook as well. After the break, it is almost a decade since Behrouz Bouchani fled Iran. Could this be the movement that ends the Iranian regime and allows him... To return home. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Tomorrow is three years to the day since Behruz Bouchani's life changed. Three years since he left Manus Island as an asylum seeker detained by the Australian government and landed in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a free man. Bouchani's experience fleeing his homeland in Iran. And his time and detention on Manus Island were detailed in his award-winning book, No Friend But the Mountains. Now, he has written a new book, Freedom Only Freedom, considers his imprisonment and wider issues around refugees, conflict, politics and human rights. Beruz Bouchani is with us this morning. we're welcome to Q&A. Yeah, thank you for having me. Your first book, No Friend But the Mountains, has been widely read, widely celebrated.
3: What more did you feel you have to share from your experience on Manus Island? Uh, Actually this book that you have is very different with the first one. So the first one was more uh, literature. So it was a a part of it it has some fictional elements, but this one is different. I think this book is more uh, like an academic book and also is about my journalism works because when I was there, I published at least uh, 100 articles, so like opinion pieces. Mm. So now we collected these articles together alongside some uh, literary uh, works. And also, we invited some, So I say we, I mean that because this book has an editor, uh, Munas Mansubi and Omito Fikion, they were they translated my articles while I was there and now they edited this book as well. Yeah. So they work with some academics and some journalists that I've been working with them, most mm. of them. So they respond to these articles.
0: I've, I've yeah. had a chance to read the book. This is the thing. So, so, yeah. so to be really clear for our audience. It's a collection of articles. It, does, it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a collection of articles describing your experience and some of the harrowing detail yeah, yeah. on Manus Island. But it is interspersed with articles and commentary from academics and yeah, yeah, other exactly. journalists. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So tomorrow is three years since yeah. you left Manus Island for New Zealand. How has your experience of freedom here changed the way
3: you reflect on Manus Island? Yeah, actually, so it's very different. <laughs> so yeah. I was there for about uh, six years. And so when I ended up in New Zealand, I was host by Naito Research Center. So I should really appreciate them. That was a great honor for me to work with them and stay with them in Canterbury University. And uh, so that was a good uh, opportunity for me actually to learn about the country. But I should mention this, that at beginning for like months Mm. my case was politicized yeah and that was quite difficult it was too much pressure on me Uh, but how was it politicized yeah on that time national party uh, politicized my case and they say why he's here and he came here with like political interference but that was not true so that was quite pressure on me social pressure uh, but I think I managed, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. now it's different. So after three years, and I didn't know, actually, you told me that tomorrow, Three years tomorrow, day, Yeah, yeah, I forgot yeah. about you. It, yeah
0: ah, it's a big anniversary, yeah. Perus. I hope you're planning some sort of celebration. Yeah. How, how do you think about Manus Island now? It's three years, which sounds like a long period
3: of time, yeah. but how do, you, how do you remember your experience? Uh, so still, I'm working, actually... So uh, with some universities, uh, and I do events uh, mostly online. Uh, so uh, when I think about it, so I'm always engaged with that. Mm. But that is my like academic side. Mm. Mm. But of course, I do different things that is not related to refugees. Mm. So I like to do writing. Uh, and. Mm artworks which is not related to refugees. Uh, but uh, when I think about it, so still we should say that, that still 200 people remain, but not in Manus Island. Yeah. So in Manus, Manus Island was closed that's right. when I came. But 100 people are in port mostly in capital city of Papua New Guinea. Yeah, They are free, but they are in a very difficult situation because it's very unsafe city actually. Mm. So they have been waiting for many years so we should expect that some of them come to New Zealand in end of this year or next year and also 100 people remain in Naro. so generally in total 200 people remain in those uh, places. So I do sometimes work f- mm. for them just to advocacy. I, gu-
0: I guess yeah. this, this is what I'm asking. In- your writing in this book describes it eloquently but in pretty affecting language. You describe a dehumanising experience on Manus Island. You were not known by your name, you were known by a number. Yeah. Men were regularly driven to self-harm and suicide. Your friend was murdered on Manus Island. Does a person recover from that kind of experience? I do mean I?
3: Yeah. Actually, uh, I should say that this book actually is not about my own experience, mm. you know. Well, it, is so you, so it is in some degree. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's my works about others, yeah. so, and some mm. of the articles are just about politics, yeah. and because this policy generally uh, established on a colonialism mentality, right. so that I focus on that in this book. Right. And also, uh, but of course, there are many articles about uh, uh, individuals inside the prison camp. But uh, uh, I think it's very difficult, because when you experience that, always you carry something with yourself, you know? So, in rest of your life. uh, But I think, and many people have been damaged mentally and physically. Uh, but, for me, I think uh, writing and literature, art, and be uh, creative actually uh, helped me to survive and stay strong. So we have mm-hmm. something in Kurdish uh, that we say resistance is life, and I think what 's happened there was a resistance, yeah not only my resistance mm. but uh, Yeah, it was a huge resistance by refugees Mm. against that uh, system that you mentioned, Mm. which designed to dehumanise people, you know, dehumanise refugees. You have been highly critical of Australia's approach to asylum seekers. What do you think of New Zealand's government approach to refugees? Uh, Of course, uh, the system is very different. So in New Zealand, uh, I think... Uh, the system is more gentle and, uh, you know, there is a very clear process, you know, for refugees. And those refugees who come here, I think already there is a good system to support them. But generally, I think what I think that New Zealand, we can criticize New Zealand is uh, the number of refugees that New Zealand accepts. You know, mm. accept 1,500 people, but I think New Zealand should do more. This country has more well, has this capacity to accept more refugees. And recently, we had an even actually in uh, the, the, the City Gallery in Wellington. Mm. I was hosting someone. I was hosting uh, Masood uh, Hosseini, who is a Pulitzer winner. Mm. Uh, yeah. Afghanistani officer winner. So I was asking him, and what he said actually was very interesting and very critical about New Zealand, because he said that for two decades New Zealand was a part of those countries who invaded uh, Afghanistan. But now he th- that what he was saying that he feels that New Zealand left people behind so new zealand should do more so i mean that a country like new zealand have been a part of like a coalition or yeah you know wars or like that so i think at least should, they should take some responsibility to take more refugees you know right that is very important i think i want to ask you about iran yeah you have described this as a revolutionary moment why I think that revolution that I'm talking about mostly happen in our mind. So people really uh, think that it is a revolution. They feel it. They they smell it, because it's very different with the other movements that already happened uh, since the Islamic Revolution in 1979, uh, especially. THE GREEN MOVEMENT on 2009. SO mm-hmm. the GREEN MOVEMENT HAPPENED IN THE CONTEXT OF reforms. BUT THIS TIME PEOPLE REALLY WANT TO CHANGE THE WHOLE r- REGIME. AND mm-hmm. THAT'S WHAT WE HEAR FROM PEOPLE AND WHAT WE SEE ON THE STREETS. AND ALSO IN 2019 THERE WAS a, ANOTHER BIG uh, PROTEST, BUT THAT WAS MOSTLY uh, THE BIG CITIES WERE NOT INVOLVED, I MEAN MIDDLE-CLASS people. But this time, everyone involved in this, so that's why uh, and you know has been you know this uh, like for about two months, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So it, 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 we hasn't showed
3: signs, or of we didn't up. see something like this before. Right
0: yeah. What is the significance that so many of these protests appear at least from the outside to be led by women?
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely a woman. Have been leading this uh, mm. protest, and recently we know that the uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern met with the uh, Iranian community, but only met with women. Uh, and I think that is great that the international community see this revolution as a uh, like a feminism movement. Mm. The slogan is "Woman, Life, Freedom" or "Jane Jiyan Azadi" in Kurdish. Uh, but I think this revolution has different sides as well, mm. like ethnic minorities movement as well. These days we see uh, mostly happening in Kurdistan, right, in west of Iran, yeah. and Balochistan. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we reduce it just to women and ethnic minorities. It has some different sides as well. W- what is the status for Kurdish people in Iran? Yeah, Kurdish people, so Jina or Masa, I mean, was uh, Kurdish. Mm. And uh, so the protest has started from Kurdistan. Mm. She was, just, just for our audience, she, she was the young woman who yeah, yeah. died
0: whilst in custody yeah. and been taken in by yeah, the religious
3: police. Yeah, Yeah, she was visiting Tehran, the capital yeah. city, so she was killed in custody. Yeah, uh, and she's Kurdish. Yeah, she's Kurdish. So the protest has started in Kurdistan, and uh, Kurdistan has been really uh, leading this protest Mm. for uh, almost uh, two months. And also there are some uh, Kurdish elements Mm. in this uh, revolution, like the slogan, woman life freedom. that come from Kurdistan. And the reason I mention that is not because I say that Kurdish people should own this uh, slogan. Mm. I think it's very important that we understand the history of this uh, slogan and the history of resistance and how Kurdish people have been fighting with this manifesto Mm. for at least more than two decades. So resistance we should understand is life. it. Yeah, resistance is life. Yeah. So we should understand it. That's why I mention it. New Zealand initially muted
0: its response to the protests in Iran and the Iranian regime's response to those protests in order to assist with negotiations of two young New Zealanders who were detained in Iran at the time. Was that the right thing to do?
3: I was actually among the probably the first people who did tweet about this. I saw it. On <laughs> September, yeah. yeah. And I tagged the New Zealand media that two New Zealand mm. citizens uh, probably arrested, mm. but no one cared about it. And I was quite angry that why no one cared about these two people. Y- your tweet was observed. And it, was <laughs> take, and it was taken to, to the government,
0: but decisions were made yeah, yeah. To, to mute the media response. So, w- was that the right thing to do?
3: Yeah, I think later we found out that actually that was a policy. And I think I should uh, give uh, credit to the government. I think the government has done a great job, really, to manage this, you mm. know, because it's very difficult to uh, help people who get uh, mm. as a hostage in Iran. Mm. But the government has done a great job. But I should mention this, that Iranian community in New Zealand were very disappointed with what the government was silent or the first comment was very, like... Insipid. Yeah, it was out of context. They said we asked for independent investigation towards Mm. massive Amini's death. That was very... Uh, unacceptable but now I think the New Zealand has done a great job so now New Zealand is doing a good job and I think that uh, that what people in New Zealand want you know and they met with the mm. uh, uh, woman in yeah. the community.
0: Certainly since the, the couple's release the yeah, yeah, government yeah. approach that, has changed. Yeah, yeah. Last question before we let you
3: go what will it take for you to return home? Uh, of course, I cannot go back home. and uh, Yeah, it's just, it's just a dream, you know, for people from Iran. But could that dream be realised? Is this, is this the protest
0: movement, the revolutionary moment yeah. that will lead to Behrouz Bouchani
3: returning? Hopefully. That is a big dream. But my biggest dream is that uh, people of Iran really uh, change this government and we establish uh, a democratic system. Mm-hmm. I, that is my biggest dream. So, secondly, I think about myself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, we it's really appreciate pleasure. It. Thank you. Berus Buchani is the author of Freedom Only Freedom. Have a look. His new book, Freedom Only Freedom, is out and available on Tuesday of this week. So, three years and one day since he arrived in Aotearoa. After the break, Ukraine records one of the most significant victories of the war as Russia withdraws from a key city. We will consider what it means for the future of the conflict. Kia we welcome back to Q&A. With the big winter freeze on the way, Russia has announced it is pulling back from Kherson a key city in Ukraine. But is it a sign that Ukrainian defenders are winning, or rather that Russian soldiers are digging in for a long, hard war? Ruben Azizian is the director of Massey University's Centre for Defence and Security Studies and is with us this morning. Kyoto, good morning. Great to see ora, you. Roger. Thank you. I want to start with some amazing pictures from overnight. Ukrainians are literally celebrating in the streets after Russia announced its withdrawal from Kherson. What is the significance of that withdrawal?
4: Uh, You ask a question whether this is, um, you know, a sign of, uh, you know, uh, victory by Ukraine and, you know, um, demonstrating their um, success, or is it a sign of uh, Russia actually digging in and and wanting to put up a more um, uh, fight against? Uh, In in my opinion, it's both. Um, It is a great uh, event. Uh, I I think uh, the Ukrainians have the right to uh, celebrate, but it's not the end of the war. Uh, it is an important turning point Uh, I think it's a humiliating uh, defeat uh, for the Russian forces Uh, but uh, we'll see what happens next because uh, I don't think the Russian government is prepared yet to surrender or Mm -hmm. compromise.
0: So so talk us through the strategy from the Russian perspective because you said it's reason for the Ukrainians to celebrate but does it mean simply that Russian forces are going to 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 fall back to other positions that they can hold more surely throughout the winter period.
4: Yeah, that's what I think they're trying to do. They uh, they cross the Dnipro Dnipro River. Uh, They have destroyed all the bridges, Mm. make sure that uh, they are not pursued by the Ukrainians. And uh, apparently they are going to use some of the 30,000 troops that they were engaged in this operation on other fronts, such as uh, Donbass, Donetsk. I Mm. think that's where they will put up a lot of resistance. Uh, And uh, they will make sure uh, that uh, they uh, retain the land bridge between Donbas and Crimea. So uh, definitely uh, this is not the end of uh, the story. Mm. Uh, But it is uh, very encouraging to see that the Ukrainians are starting to regain uh, more more of the territory. And that, I think, sends uh, a very strong message uh, to Moscow and Russia. And there's also, again, there's a talk, there are rounds of these speculations about whether Putin will survive another defeat and humiliation or not, whether he will be removed from power, whether he will resign or whatever. Uh, we don't know yet what, what is going to happen, but definitely uh, there is certain panic, uh, certain uh, feeling of... Um, you know, humiliation amongst the Russian uh, elite or so-called elite. I know this word is sometimes misinterpreted and mm. exploited uh, and some believe that uh, you can't refer to the governing body of Russia as an elite but uh, that's a political science term. Right. Is it just, just how much panic is there? Well uh, definitely Kherson uh, uh, is was the only regional capital that Russia uh, conquered during its uh, full-scale invasion so losing a regional capital is a big thing Mm. so definitely uh, there is feeling however um, um, this defeat and humiliation is being camouflaged Um, Russian propaganda is quite uh, you know uh, sophisticated in that sense Um, so I've been reading some Russian media sources and it's uh, there's no, uh, there's no criticism of Putin yet. He's mm. the commander-in-chief, and yet he's been, uh, you know, um, he's been quiet, and uh, the media doesn't really directly attack him. So all mm. the criticism is off the uh, uh, either uh, armed forces, or this is presented as a uh, humanitarian action. We wanted to save the lives of our troops. Uh, this is a goodwill, uh, which mm. has uh, become a ridiculous term, and uh, Ukrainians are laughing at any every retreat of Russian troops is presented as a goodwill gesture. Mm. I think the goodwill gesture should have been not intervening uh, on the 24th of February of 22. That would have been a very goodwill gesture. But. Mm. Uh, um, I- I think uh, there is still strong uh, belief um, in, in the Russian uh, government that they can still um, defend what, um, uh, definitely uh, Crimea or uh, parts of Donbas, but I think there is increasing uh, concern and fear that uh, the territories that will be taken after the 24th of February are not going to last long under Russian occupation. Mm.
0: Winter is on the way. In terms of defence... What fighting will be possible throughout the Ukrainian winter?
4: There is debate, uh, a lot of debate, about the you know, impact of weather and winter and whether that will slow down, for example, the Ukrainian offensive. Mm. But uh, some experts believe, and I would agree with them, that uh, the Ukrainians are um, actually conducting a warfare which uh, uh, very much uh, is based on uh, use of technology and smart strategy. So, it's not about sending troops uh, mm. across Dnipro necessarily, but it's about uh, destroying some logistical uh, areas for Russian supplies mm. uh, and make sure that's what happened. That's what, uh, how the Russians were um, beaten in uh, Kharkiv and Kiev regions by starting to uh, destroy their logistical supply areas, mm. the roads, and uh, making them actually uh, very um, dependent and uh, um, having to retreat. Um, so I think similar things will happen. So I don't think the weather will have much impact mm. on that, but the weather will have probably more impact on the Russian troops. As we, we know, they are not, uh, the s- some of the mobilized people don't have proper clothes. You see all these uh, mm. you know, uh, uh, pictures and uh, video clips from everywhere, how. Uh, poorly they are uh, closed Mm. and supported and so that could have actually more impact on the Russian troops than on the Ukrainians. You
0: talked before about Russian propaganda and one thing I have been personally very conscious of throughout this conflict is that almost all of the news and information we get in New Zealand regarding the conflict comes through either a British or American lens and all of that information comes with the implicit support of the Ukrainian armed forces. I'm not saying that we're necessarily being spun, but I am aware that we're probably not getting a full picture. How hard do you find it getting good information about what is actually happening in Ukraine?
4: Well, um, I, I'm lucky that I'm multilingual. Yes. I, I can read different sources. Um, I, even although I, can, I read Russian sources, uh, I have to say that uh, uh, Russian uh, media is also uh, of two types, right? Hmm. There is the government media, but there is the opposition media. Most of it is being uh, tr- uh, broadcast from overseas. Uh, there are channels like uh, Rain. Uh, there are other programs uh, uh, on YouTube uh, mm-hmm. that uh, present a Russian perspective. So when we say Russian perspective, do we mean Putin government perspective, or do we mean perspective by various sectors of the Russian community? And some are overseas. Some are quite critical. Um, But uh, speaking of Western media, I have to say that not every uh, source of uh, Western information is also uh, um, Mm -hmm. anti-Russian. Interestingly, there are still uh, supporters of uh, Putin's regime in various Western countries, um, so-called... The Republican Party is a good place to start. So we have seen that uh, coming, but uh, definitely uh, in new zealand we we do rely more on the you know mainstream western media mm. sources uh, and but uh, in most cases in my opinion they are balanced uh, they are mm. not necessarily pro uh, anti russian uh, they could be pro ukrainian for a good reason but right. uh, i think um, Based on some well, Just by way of
0: example, I always find it interesting that we get updates on on Russian casualties, for example, right. but it seems very difficult sometimes to get updates on Ukrainian casualties. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that right. <laughs> that Ukraine should have been invaded or anything like that. I'm just merely noting that even in an information age, sometimes getting clear accurate information in a conflict like this can be lost in the fog of war.
4: Yeah, I know. I know. You're probably a a better person to discuss whether media can be (laughs) fully independent or not, but uh, uh, definitely in a situation where you have a Mm. clear aggressor Mm. and a clear victim, uh, I, I find it's probably hard for journalists to be completely objective. How has this affected you? PERSONALLY? Yeah. WELL, uh, uh, AS I MENTIONED IN OUR FIRST uh, INTERVIEW IN MARCH, I, I'M very, mu- VERY MUCH saddened BY WHAT'S HAPPENING. Uh, BECAUSE THIS IS NOT uh, JUST A uh, TRAGIC TIME FOR UKRAINE. IT'S ALSO A VERY TRAGIC TIME FOR RUSSIA, IN MY OPINION, AND MANY RUSSIANS. Uh THOUSANDS LEFT RUSSIA. Um, AND uh, THAT WASN'T MY VISION OF RUSSIA AFTER THE BREAKUP OF USSR, AS I MENTIONED TO YOU LAST TIME. Mm. Uh, I have stopped joking um, uh, to to my students that I ended the Cold War in New Zealand because uh, I I really felt in December 91 when the Soviet Union uh, was dissolved Mm. there was uh, a strong hope among the embassy staff, I was a member of that community of uh, diplomatic staff at the embassy, we were hoping that Russia would become a genuine uh, democracy and uh, so this is not just about a war which is significant in itself It's about um, the type of governance Mm. and authoritarian leadership that Russia has become Mm -hmm. in 22 years since Putin came to power. Mm. So that, to me, that is very sad, and I don't see a bright future for Russia uh, even after this war is ended because uh, there is no opposition Mm. in Russia, and you have to really rebuild. And um, um, sometimes this happens after... humiliating defeats. And that could be maybe uh, a reason for Russia to reconsider its Mm. path.
0: Ruben Azizian, once again thank you very much for your time. We hope we can speak to you again very soon. Thank you, Jack. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. I have run over time so I'm sorry Kumutu that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team thanks for watching Namihi ki a karidear thank you very much for your feedback Hey Ted, Wiki we will see you next Sunday at 9am Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air